this is uh, Joe Cole. This is Ruben Off the Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. It's another Matt Law special. And Matt, the busiest season for you as a writer, it seems nowadays, not Champions League finals, not end of the season run up. It is a transfer window and it is on the eve of deadline day for the summer of 2021-2022. How are you taking it all in? What's your strategy for staying sane during the uh, the closing hours here? Um actually one strategy is not to watch Sky Sports News and not to watch Twitter too much. <laughs> Because it's tempting to spend, um, obviously we're speaking on transfer deadline day eve on Monday, and it's tempting to spend Monday and Tuesday just sat either in front of Sky Sports News or with Twitter just constantly refreshing, and it drives you crazy in the amount of rumours and speculation and stuff. And yes, it might occasionally uh, make you see something that you might not see straight away otherwise, or someone else might have to alert you to, but... Honestly, it drives you mad. And I would actually give that advice to all football fans out there and not is to try and try and just take your mind off and do something else. Because, you know, as, as we've learned, you know, the likelihood is that not a lot happens in all honesty. There's a lot of talk and a lot of what does happen is what you already expect to happen. Very few surprises on transfer deadline day these days. So, yeah, I try, I try and keep a steady head about it and... Um, to be honest, it is a busy time, but it's a busy time and it's a bit like the fans. You can't do a lot more than just wait at this time. I mean, you just have to wait to see almost how things play out. I mean, it, it's very risky trying to report any definitives at this time unless the club actually confirm a signing. Saying anything's definitively on or ver- or off with sort of 36, 24 hours of the transfer window left is uh, is leaving yourself hostage to fortune slightly. And I actually feel I'd like to just apologise in advance because, again, I think we're talking 2, 2 p.m. Monday. And then the nature of the transfer window is, is that I will give you all the information I currently have. And there is even a danger that in one hour's time it will be out of date, let alone when this comes out. So I would like to apologise in advance if uh, if things become out of date because it's just impossible to... Uh, to sort of guard against that. Well, I think our audience is aware that news recorded on a Monday, released on a Tuesday, might spoil faster than milk left on the counter. <laughs> but we will absolutely make all caveats and claims around that to ensure that no one is disappointed with the end product we deliver. Because we are, again, talking about the closing hours of the transfer window, what Chelsea still might be able to get done. We're going to talk about uh, Chelsea's Champions League draw and get Matt's perspective on the quest to repeat as champions of Europe. Not an easy thing to do, but how Chelsea might be able to get it done. Also, this weekend's match versus Liverpool and maybe an assessment on how Chelsea have got on so far. Uh, and maybe just you know before we get into the end of the window here, Matt, from a fun perspective, what's what's the trope or what's the kind of recurring theme uh that you find maybe most hilarious when it comes to like a transfer window like i think the flight tracking it takes it to a level of absurdity that, <laughs> that it just borders on hilarity but you know you could tell me do you have like a funny like this one is just where people go too far and you can't you can't abide uh it's just all the sort of it's it, i haven't got a great answer for this but it's probably just all the sort of Rumours you see, oh, I, I know a, a man who knows the nan of the ex-partner of Kai Havertz who works at the service station down the road and they say he's currently at 
Cobham training ground or something. You know, you, you get these crazy people who who make up these sort of vague associations to players to try and make up a rumour. Though that's probably the most recurring one. You see, the flight tracker one is a is a slightly more modern addition to that. It was interesting actually. The flight tracker one came up last week because I think on Friday, one news outlet who I will uh, I will not name and shame had reported that um, Ronaldo had got on his private jet from Turin and, and landed in Manchester. And you only had to take the the, the number of the plane off the back of the wing and, and flight tracker, and you'd have seen that he had landed in Lisbon. And I, I noticed that quite quickly got corrected. But uh, yeah, the flight tracker is a bit of a new one. And people watch that fly about. I, I'm assuming the the um, the Spaniards will be waiting to try and find a Kylian Mbappe flight tracker if if anything progresses there over the next few hours. Well, as we know, TikTok, TikTok, they're waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what they could pull off. But as we look, maybe a little more blue tinted, thinking about Chelsea specifically. What's your sense of how the club feels in this moment? You know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, they got Lukaku, so they got the big signing out of the way. They moved some of the players off the books that they needed to get out. You know, is it a sense of calm and kind of waiting for things to happen and respond? Or is there still a little sense of urgency, maybe even particularly after Conte going off injured in uh, the game this weekend? I think they're still quite relaxed, just the vibe I get this morning. I mean, I, I, I checked in with a couple of my contacts this morning on on um, Jules Kunde and Saul. And, and even though the news was the deals have, have currently stalled um, with a sort of uh, impasse in regards to both deals over over money pretty much, um, there was a sense of calm. It, 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 I've always got the sense on the midfielder on Saul, um, and I, I think I've said this on the show before, that it's not really been a top priority and it's more like if, if we can get this on our terms of a deal that we like, if something falls into our lap almost, we'll do it. If not, no worries. That's the view of the club, whether people agree with it. And Kunde as well. I mean, I said on the last show that even if they don't sign him this window, I, I do expect them to probably try and set up a deal for another window, whether it was January, whether it be January or whether it be next summer. Um, so I don't think that would be the end of that one. And I, I think with Jules Kunde, that the feeling has always been that um, there is a there is an eye on the future with that with that interest and that that potential signing. So if it didn't happen now and it had to happen in January or next summer, I don't think the club are panicking about that. And I, you know, I've, I've covered Chelsea a long time. You know, also when the manager is is getting very frustrated with things. You know, we used to have it with Mourinho every window. We used to have it with Conte every window. And we were told before he came to Chelsea that Tuchel was very much like that. But I haven't had any sense of that whatsoever. Um, I haven't had any sense of Tuchel getting frustrated with anything. I've spoke to him twice recently on Zoom and press conferences and we've asked him about transfers and that he's been pretty calm. So I do actually think the club is still pretty calm and relaxed about everything. And if, if one or two or both of them come off, great. If they don't, I don't think there's going to be a sense of panic. Well, that's a a nice position to be in and maybe just kind of talking about like if there was the priority between that midfielder and defender, it seems like the purchase of Koundé is still higher kind of from a priority or like a permanent deal. But the midfielder loan for Saul is more of a if it happens, great, but there's still the the minor detail of money to come (laughs) to make everything get along. Yeah, I mean, Kunde is more of a priority. He's been a player Chelsea have tracked for well over a year now. He's a deal, certainly within this window, that, that they have chased to some degree. Rather than in the terms of Saul, I think the um, 
the opportunity was presented to them. So I think he is a priority over Sol. And the, the fact they want to sign him permanently and at the moment they don't want to sign Sol permanently shows you he's a priority. That doesn't necessarily mean he's more likely to happen than Sol. Um, because if they can't get the right deal with Seville, who seem to have moved the goalposts on the fee, then it doesn't look like they'll do it um, at this stage. But yeah, couldn't they, if you were to ask them, if you were to put a hypothetical scenario to Chelsea of you can have one of the two, you can have Kunde permanent or Sal loan, which would you do? They would do Kunde permanent. Mm-hmm. And then the the last one, which we kind of talked about last week, and then uh, as maybe not necessarily predicted due to the kind of crazy own goal, but Monaco did crash out of the Champions League. There's a, maybe a need now to generate some funds to Shemeni looks to, you know, maybe not necessarily be available, but be an option if Chelsea did want to make a bid. Do you see anything happening crazy in the closing hours there? Look, at the moment, I don't have any sort of new information on anything about to happen on that. I, I still suspect, like I said before, that he's not quite what they're after in, in terms of experience and someone to come straight in necessarily and and be able to, to make an, an impact. Um I think he would be more slightly looking forward to the future. And I don't think at this stage of the window, that's quite what they're looking at. However, all I would say is traditionally, Chelsea have surprised me on the last day of transfer windows before. Um, and deals can easily come from nowhere. Well, in terms of coming out into the public, come from nowhere. Um, so, you know, never say never with Chelsea, I, I think, in a, the end of a transfer window. And I've learned that sort of anything can happen, no matter how much you think you've got your finger across the pole. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if tomorrow a, a kind of shock deal came up. But I haven't, I want to stress, I haven't heard that there's one in the, the offing. So there's also outgoing that needs to continue too. There's still too many players on Chelsea's book and not enough places for them in the squad or even maybe for the, the boot room in, in Cobham. You know, they need to clear out some space for some extra pairs of cleats for the players they brought in. Um, maybe kind of talking through, you know, the Zuma one landed. We've ended it. You know, what's your assessment on how well or how good of a business Chelsea did there? And, you know, because West Ham, it seemed like it took a little bit of a longer time. There was the reports of maybe medical concerns from Zuma's previous knee injury. How do you feel that deal, you know, if you were kind of grading it, did Chelsea do a good job or was that uh, kind of more just a, we need to make space for Kunde? No, I think it was a good, I think it was a good deal all, all around. And I don't think it was just done to, to make space for Kunde. I mean, Chelsea have always been fairly insistent that they wouldn't stockpile, so they wouldn't try and sign, actually push ahead with trying to sign Kunde if they didn't sell Zuma, because they don't want to just stockpile and and not be able to give player squad numbers or or have a silly amount of central defenders. Um, but I, I, I just think it's, I, I don't think there's a winner necessarily from the, the deal, and there's certainly no loser. I think it's a good deal all around. I think it was 29.8 million, so basically 30 million for, you know, a player at Chelsea who at the moment isn't getting games. Um, he does have, he has had a knee issue and that did cause an issue in the medical. That will always mean there's only a certain fee you can get for a player like that. You're never going to get a sort of 50 million pound fee, no matter how good they are, if there's a doubt on someone's medical condition. Um, I think he's a really good signing for West Ham. And yeah, I, I just see it as a, a, a good deal all round, really. Um, and it does create that little bit of wiggle room for Chelsea if they can get something in. And it means they haven't got a player 
who potentially between now and January, if he really wasn't playing, could get sort of could get frustrated, could get unhappy, and and that could seep through because you know players have friends in dressing rooms, even if they're not trying to be toxic or trying to be bad. If they're unhappy, it does get around the group a little bit, and we saw that spirit at Anfield and. You don't want anything that that would be of detriment to that. And I think it's fairly obvious that Thiago Silva, when fully fit, will always probably be the first sub, as it were, in terms of that that back three. Um, so, yeah, I just I, I thought it was a good deal all around. It wasn't mega money, but I think it, it, it's good money and sensible money for him and a good move for him. So as it relates to, you know, again, because uh, it's the New Holland effect, right? We have to talk about Rice at least once per episode. Does that do anything for the future in terms of establishing a good working relationship with West Ham to next summer potentially influence or help a deal? To me, it probably doesn't because they're probably viewed in a bubble. But just because we know we'll get asked, (laughs) we'll put the question to you. No, I don't think it has any significance at all, to be quite honest with you. What I would say is that I'm told that, that... I was told before this um, this deal was finalised, actually, that Chelsea do have quite a good relationship with West Ham anyway, um, and that the relationships at sort of some of the board level people there are are quite good. Um, so that would obviously be helpful to any Declan Rice talks next time. But I I don't think this Zuma deal, as it were, has has um, will impact that at all. Quite frankly, I think you're right. I think it's in a bubble. And I think if you go to try and sign someone's best player and a player they really want to keep, no matter who you've sold them, it's not going to sort of give you any sort of advantage or help you. Not going to lower the field, make them more willing to sell particularly. So, uh, no, it won't do anything for the De- for any Declan Rice interest next summer. So, you know, maybe two players that, you know, we didn't kind of put in the script here, but we've seen kind of maybe more conversation over the last 24 hours is just, you know, Loftus-Cheek, you know, gets on the you know gets on the bench for the Liverpool match, and then Callum Hudson Odoi. You know, some rumors maybe of a, a move to Germany. What are you seeing for those two players as it looks to end the window? Well, look again at, at the time of speaking. I, I'm I'm told that no one's really come in for for Ruben at the moment. Um, that's not to say someone won't come in late. Obviously, we know that Borussia Dortmund have now shown an interest in. Callum, although I think that's quite a long-standing interest, to be honest. I just think it's it's been sort of um, peaked again, shall we say, by the fact that Callum hasn't had any minutes in the Premier League yet this season. Um, I think both of those players, if they were to go, it could be very reliant on whether the Saul or the Kunde deals were reignited. Um, Callum obviously can, can provide some cover at right wing, but I mean, ironically enough, if Chelsea didn't sign Kunde, who can play at right back and obviously can play on the right side of a central three and let Callum go, Chelsea could find themselves slightly short for the Aston Villa game, ironically enough, because Rhys James is suspended for that game. And that the option for, for Tuchel is basically, do you um, put Aspie out there and, and bring in, obviously, Thiago Silva, you would imagine, into the back three? Or do you actually play Callum right wing back as he started in the Super Cup and started in Tuchel a few times? So as we stand for the Aston Villa game, actually, Callum all of a sudden isn't that far away from the team. Um, and he can provide some cover at right wing back. He obviously has, he's quite well down the list in terms of that left side of the forward places, as Tuchel said in his press conference last Friday. But 
if you're not bringing anyone in, Tuchel's talked about the fact that he feels he's kind of on the limit with his squad in terms of the size of it, that he wouldn't really want it to be any smaller now because of competing in all the competitions. Um, so from that aspect, I would be surprised if they let him go unless something happens on one of the other two in terms of incoming. Ruben, different kind of player to Sal Niguez, obviously. Um, not that sort of number eight. But again, there's that kind of fourth place midfield and you might have to drop Mount into, you might even end up with a game where you have to drop Mount, who could definitely play as a double pivot. You know, Mount's all-round ability is fantastic. And then that again opens up a space further at the pitch. So again, I think Ruben at the moment would give the possibilities and would give them possibilities off the bench, as we saw he was on the bench against Liverpool. So, And there hasn't been an offer for Ruben as we talk. So I, I think they've got a little bit of a waiting game on their hands. Oh, we'll, uh, we'll see how all it ends up falling here. An interesting link was seeing Tino Andrin linked to uh, potentially move into Russia. I mean, obviously, there was some uh, maybe kind of connection from uh, Tuchel or uh, Ragnik, which you know makes it maybe a, a kind of a reason why. But that would be a really interesting one. I think you know we've seen so many youth players leave this season that that would be just another one that we're we're scratching our heads a little bit. But also doesn't look likely to be kind of top on the list for minutes at Chelsea this season. So is that something that may materialize? Yeah, that that caught me out actually. Um, I can't remember whether it was Nizar Kinsella or someone else who reported that first, but whoever did did well on that. I I I wasn't across that at all, and it surprised me. I've got to say because I think I've spoken on the show before that before. Trevor Chalaba um, emerged this season. I had Andrin down as maybe the one who would stay um, and get those sort of Billy Gilmore minutes almost in the FA Cup and in the League Cup and and maybe occasional league games. So that that's taken me by surprise. The fact it's Ranić makes me think that even if it's a permanent deal, it would surely have a buyback and it would be a glorified loan deal because it feels like if it's Ranić, it's designed with the fact that Tuchel has has a bit like Gilmore under Farker, has decided that this lad can go and develop well under someone he trusts and someone he rates. So even if it's presented, even if he were to go and it's presented as a permanent deal, I'd be amazed if there wasn't a buyback on that. And I'd be equally amazed if if the conversation hadn't actually been go and play under this guy because he's really good and he's a bit like me and it will set you up well for coming back here. I I would be staggered and disappointed if they were just selling him Um and sort of, you know, almost taking their chances on letting him go because I haven't seen loads of him um, because I don't tend to watch the under-23 games, but people rave about Andrew and Stanton. The bits I have seen of him have been really promising. So I'd be surprised and disappointed if they were considering actually just selling him without any kind of thought of bringing him back. Well, that's a, a, a one to consider and one to keep an eye out for. And then I think the last one, you know, we, we've seen the, the Bakayoko saga coming to a close mm-hmm. maybe here at Chelsea finally with uh, heading back to Milan. Um, this is also the third deal we've put together with them uh, in, in recent memory. You know, now that we have Giroud going there, we have Tomori going there and now Bakayoko. Are they developing as like a preferred club to work with do does Chelsea want to have that type of relationship with a few clubs where they can easily shift or move players AC Milan have been a sort of friendly club to Chelsea for a while now um it's not just been in the last season or two there's definitely close connections there I think AC Milan were involved in that weird 
um, complicated loan move for Gonzalo Higuain a few years ago when about three clubs had to be involved because who he'd played for and who he hadn't played for. I can't quite remember the specifics of it. Um, Bakayoko has obviously gone to Milan a couple of times and there's been a historical link now for a few years between Chelsea and AC Milan. I'm, I'm honestly not sure at what level. I'm not sure where that link quite comes from, but there is one and they use it to good effect. And and yeah, it's um, it's working for them. It's very handy. All, all clubs, all the top clubs have these sort of relationships with, with certain clubs. I mean, for instance, I, I know they're struggling to get this Sal deal over the line at the moment, but Chelsea have always had a good relationship with that. That's going Madrid as well. Um, it just comes through deals. It seems to be that there's a good relationship forging with Borussia Dortmund um, back through where, since they did that Pulisic deal where they allowed Pulisic to stay there. So Milan's definitely on that list of clubs and it, it, it it's worked out. And, you know, they, they the weird thing is about Bakayoko is he'll, he'll be sort of cast as this failure signing for Chelsea. And yet there's every chance by the time his contract runs out with the amount of loans and loans fees and if they can eventually get a small fee for him on the last year, they might even make, make a, a profit on Bakayoko at the end of the day. It, it's crazy how these things work out. It's uh, some Hollywood accounting there where uh, a multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar movie doesn't uh, doesn't make any profit, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how the Chelsea accountants can get across here. But we'll take a quick ad break here. We want to thank these sponsors for financially supporting the show. And we'll be right back. All right, so to close the book on transfers, we're done talking about that, Matt, because the season is basically over by the time people are listening to this. But you know, Chelsea had a, a Champions League draw and we are now looking at european fixtures in the month of september you know as we kind of think about what's coming next how do you think chelsea got on as we went about a draw as best as uh uh essien and avranovic could put together for us or <laughs> i think look i think it was a good draw on loads of levels i mean first of all i'll give you an insight into how i look at draws because i, I immediately look at the ease of travel and and also that the kind of city themselves in terms of I'm sure lots of fans look at it this way in terms of sort of heading over there what what is it going to be a good city is it going to be a boring city is it going to be a fun city and I've got to say in non-COVID times Turin, St Petersburg and Malmo in terms of trips would be one of the best groups you could put together you know Italy St. Petersburg, for anyone who's been beautiful city, absolutely fantastic city and, and a great culture to it. Great place to go. Malmo, I've been before. Great place to go. Sweet, expensive when you get there, but a great place to go. And it's a shame, really, because the, the whole COVID thing, it's a bit of a bittersweet draw because you look at that and think, oh, wow, that's a great, you know, I'd love to go to all those games. Good team, well, good historical teams, shall we say, not necessarily the greatest teams at the moment. Great cities, usually fairly easy to get to um it would be a really great draw and also you would expect Chelsea to top the group relatively comfortably however in covid times it's a little bit bittersweet because uh Juventus in Italy at the moment they're on the amber list but for UK travelers so obviously the, the Chelsea fans going from London um if you want to go to the game, you have to quarantine for five days when you get to Italy, which is very difficult for a lot of people to do with work. So it's almost a week-long trip. Russia, 14-day quarantine for UK residents. Nightmare. Sweden won't let UK residents in at all. Only Swedish citizens or spouses of Swedish citizens. So any Chelsea fans with a Swedish wife get lucky, but, but nobody else. So actually, we haven't yet heard from UEFA 
what their plan is for you for away supporters. A, whether they're even allowing away supporters to these games, because there's some suggestion they might not do. And then B, is there going to be any way around these quarantine rules that makes it viable? Because I don't see for the average Chelsea fan, if they keep these quarantine rules, even, even if they say away fans can go, how many Chelsea fans can give up five or six days to go to Turin for one football match? Nobody, I'm assuming, can give up two weeks and nobody can go into Sweden. So it's a really bittersweet draw for the fan, I think. Um, and that's how I've looked at the. I've got to say most of my focus has been on that draw. I'm, I'm currently trying to work out with media whether I can even go to the games or whether I'll have to cover them off the TV. I don't know yet. And it's ridiculous that UEFA, especially for the fans, I'm not talking necessarily for the press because we, we shouldn't be first priority, but the fans should be first priority. And it's ridiculous that the fans, A, don't know whether they can go at all, B, don't know whether they'll have to do these quarantines. So you can't book any travel or, or book anything up. So it's a shame from that perspective. And it's 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 taken a bit of a gloss off the draw for me because, you know, it's great having a draw, but then if you can't go, it's not quite so much fun. I mean, for instance, the other draw I was looking at closely was West Ham in the Europa League, just because I was interested in their return to Europe. And they've got two countries on the green list and one country on the amber list, and none of them have any quarantine rules for UK travellers when they're going. So West Ham fans can at the moment, and as long as away fans are allowed, can go to all of West Ham's um, Europa League fixtures as normal. And Chelsea fans, I'm assuming, are all in the dark about what they can do in terms of those those three games. If you want to talk about it on a purely football level, again, I think it's a good draw. I think it's an exciting draw just because Juventus, traditionally one of the great clubs, they're not at the top of the game at the moment, but they're not they're not bad. You know, it'll be a competitive match. And I always think it helps in the group stages if you've got a club like that. Otherwise, the group stages can become quite boring, to be quite honest with you. Um, and then Zenit and Malmo, they, they should be teams that, that Chelsea would beat. So you would expect Chelsea to to top the group. But I think it's, in a football sense, I think it's a good draw for Chelsea and also an interesting draw. Yeah, I you know, also lucking out into Cristiano Ronaldo leaving Juventus ahead <laughs> of this. You know, he saw Chelsea in the draw. He's like, I'm good. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to tarnish the legacy. I'm going to go to United instead and I'll go through there. Very easy. <laughs> I'm puzzled on that one, though, because every Juventus, I do actually know some Juventus fans who, who follow Italian football very closely. And... Every sort of person who follows Juventus closely tells me that Juventus are better off without Ronaldo. And yet Ronaldo was top scorer in Serie A last season. So I'm, I'm confused as to whether Ronaldo not being there or being there is a good thing or a bad thing for Chelsea, quite frankly. Well, I, I think the early group stage and to the point that you talked about the travel is definitely a huge concern for uh, you know, our, our supporter friends who live, you know, live in London or live overseas who are trying to get to these matches and it's going to be... Um, very complex and we, you know, feel very, uh, feel very much for them in terms of the, maybe the inability that they'll have to go see those games. The, again, the group stage looks to be promising, looks to be a group that Chelsea should top and put us into a good position for, uh, you know, the, the knockout rounds as it were with the lack of away goals and everything that comes with that. But it'll be an interesting start to a, uh, attempt to, Build a defense, build a title defense. This is not easy. It's not easy to repeat in the Champions League. <laughs> well, no, no, not at all. And it, it, it definitely won't be easy this time around when you when you look around, um, you know, what PSG have been doing, you know, whether they sort of gel that squad. But you, you would imagine that PSG, I think Pochettino 
might even have to win the Champions League this season to keep his job. You know, it's, if, a ti- if a team invests that much money in, in terms of wages in, in signing Lionel Messi and you've got a front three of Messi, Neymar, potentially Mbappe, potentially somebody else, depending on what happens, and they've got Donnarumma in, and they've got Ramos in, and they've got Wijnaldum in, albeit a lot of them free transfers. Their history in terms of sacking managers for not doing well enough in the Champions League tells me that Pochettino has to win the Champions League to, to keep his job. So you would imagine Paris Saint-Germain are going to be a force. And of course, they're in Manchester City's group, which is a, which is a sort of hell of a group to, to start with. Although, you know, you'd imagine they'll both get through fairly comfortably. Then the City, who still haven't got a striker, and all of a sudden Man United come into the mix. Now, you know, all of a sudden, the Ronaldo factor. So I think it'll be a really competitive Champions League. The Champions League is always very difficult to predict. It, it always feels before the Champions League starts that it's very easy to pick a favourite, and it's actually quite rare that that favourite will, will go on and win it But since the days of those sort of dominant, very dominant Barcelona-Real Madrid sides. If Real Madrid get Kylian Mbappé, does that give them a chance? Who knows? So, yeah, it'll be really interesting. It's funny, isn't it? Because this time last year, Chelsea were, were starting that Champions League campaign and you'd have just said if they can get to a quarterfinal, that's progress. You know, I, I think I wrote a newsletter very early on about how long it had been since Chelsea had got past the last 16 or a quarterfinal and that it's just time for them to do that and to actually start competing at this level. I never dreamed in a million years this time last year that Chelsea could have won the Champions League. And here we are now with them as uh, as holders and, as you say, looking to build that defence. Well, the uh, fun for it to get started after the international break. But we, we did have you know a few matches now where you've had a chance to assess how Chelsea look for this season. We also had the clash this weekend against Liverpool. And you know, we were talking before we started recording and I was offering some perspective on it. And you were asking for the fan view, but maybe from your analysis standpoint how are you viewing Chelsea's performance in that match and maybe how that is the definition of the the Tuchel mentality that uh, has been reinstilled into the side yeah look I mean I actually thought it's probably the most impressive performance and result of the season for Chelsea so far to be quite honest with you because Crystal Palace okay you expected them to beat Crystal Palace again Arsenal Unless Arsenal suddenly turns up, I fully expected them to beat Arsenal. Um, if you'd have told me ten down to ten men at half time, having just conceded a goal on the stroke of half time, that, that Chelsea would get a draw against Liverpool, I, I'd have betted against it quite heavily. Um, even with this this side that put together, I mean, I just think it shows how good he is that in that dressing room at half time. You know, because I, 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 I've watched, I watched it late because, I, as I said to you before we started, I was at Aston Villa as a fan on Saturday. So I listened to it on the radio on the way home and then watched it on catch-up the following day. Um, and just watching how that last two minutes unfolded of that first half and not only the fact that Chelsea conceded, not only the fact that Reese James was sent off, but you had Rüdiger getting booked. You had a big melee in the goal mouth. Chelsea's heads are in danger of going because they felt that they'd been hard done by and they felt annoyed by it. And even in the tunnel coming out for the second half, you know, the commentators were saying the Chelsea players are still sort of having a go at the referee and things. And the heads could have completely gone. So what Tuchel has done in that dressing room at half time is remarkable to to get them all to calm down, to concentrate on their jobs and send them out with a plan for them to execute, no matter how hard done they've been, how annoyed they've been. They've managed to get themselves into a position whereby 
backs against the walls and, and they're going to fight this one out. And they did. And I thought that was just incredibly impressive. And, you know, I was, I was impressed with Antonio Rüdiger because, again, him him on a yellow card at the end of the first half, I wasn't impressed what he did to get that yellow card, I must say. I, I thought that was poor. Um, but for him to be on a yellow card at half time against that front three and put in the defensive display and the maturity and not get himself into any trouble in the second half, I thought was extremely impressive. And I thought that probably embodied what Tuchel brings because, again, I think it would have been easy for Digger to... I'm sure Liverpool would have been looking to target him and wind him up and, and try and get him involved in some of the things we know he can get involved in. And yet he he was very clever to reel it back in and, and just defend superbly. So he epitomised it. Christensen was absolutely excellent. And then Thiago Silva, who comes off the bench again... You see Thiago Silva come off the bench at half-time. And again, I, I slightly feared for him because he hasn't played a lot this season. He's 36. You're thinking the guy's going to be a little bit rusty. We saw last season, actually, when he started for Chelsea, he did need a few games to get into it. A nightmare at West Bromwich Albion. And I thought, again, this is the worst possible scenario for Thiago Silva to have to come into it. And in actual fact, he was perfect in it. It, it worked out perfectly for him. So, yeah, I was, I was hugely impressed. And I actually thought it was the most impressive performance of, of the season so far for Chelsea. So, you know, with that, you know, in terms of the maybe title challenger credentials as it stands, does this type of performance or result improve your thought about what Chelsea might be able to do this season? Um, do you feel like it's still on the same course as we have been? And the trajectory is more of a, a wait and see still as Lukaku and Havertz and Mount continue to find that chemistry that maybe was missing just a touch in this last match? We, we haven't quite seen how everything's going to play out, but it would have strengthened my belief that, yes, they can challenge for the title because to do that, uh, they, they lost Kante to injury. You know, if you just put all these things together, there's no way in a million years they should have got anything from that game. You know, they, they lose a goal on the stroke half time. They lose a man. Kante, arguably, their their world-class player, gets injured. They have to bring on a 36-year-old who's barely played this season. It's all all the Rudiger on a yellow card, all the ingredients, all the recipes there for an absolute disaster um, if you write it out as some sort of film script. And in actual fact, it all came together to work out really well and they, they've made the best of it. And I think that that will stand them in really good stead. I think the manner of it we saw at the end of the game that they sort of embraced and they hugged into little huddles and they were saying things to each other. I think they'll go into the international break now with a great... They've had a great spirit anyway. They've just won the Champions League and they've won the first two games of the season. But I think the spirit will be even stronger now because of the circumstances of that draw. And I think the way they sort of celebrated that draw showed that. It's almost like they'd got through in a cup or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, it, it places them really, really well. So the last kind of part maybe about that match in particular, because I, I want, again, more focus on what Chelsea did right than what maybe others did wrong or the points of consternation that we had as supporters. But obviously, Anthony Taylor was a little bit of a, a headline, uh, unfortunately, in this match. And maybe kind of, again, from the outside perspective, you know, are, are the Chelsea supporters, are we making up a, a bias that Taylor has that uh, <laughs> doesn't exist? Um, or are we maybe looking at this as something where there, you know, could be a legitimate assessment that maybe Taylor could have done things differently that would have made everybody feel a little bit better. Uh, well, are you basing this solely on the penalty and the sending off or on the match 
more. I think the I think the whole match because I think there was also like the the Fabinho definitely had a lot of fouls. Uh, maybe could have been adjudicated with a yellow card at some point for the tactical fouling. Uh, but uh, you know the the JPEG review of the decision was probably a situation where the time at the monitor did not feel adequate for the moment, but. Again, you know, we could be uh, again building a case that doesn't exist to satisfy our our feeling aggrieved. <laughs> well, put it this way: I went to Villa on Saturday as a fan. First time I've been as a fan. I've been to report on games with no fans there, and with a few fans there for that Chelsea game, which Villa won. Cough, cough. Um, so, I, that's, this was my first time back to my fan. I was with my six-year-old boy, who obviously hasn't been for well over a year because of COVID, and. Um, the most shouting I did in that match was at the referee. Now, I know full well that most of it was absolute nonsense. I wanted Ivan Tony sent off at one point. I was outraged at a free kick he gave against Villa. I thought he was appalling. Da, 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 da. And now I come home, I have a bit of time, and I realise that most of what I was talking about was absolute nonsense and was just me viewing it through claret and blue spectacles and I was lost in the moment. And that's part of watching football. So my point is, is I, I don't think there was a Chelsea bias, a, a bias against Chelsea in that game. I have to say, yes, it was harsh that Reese James got sent off. But the rule is harsh. Not what Anthony Taylor did is harsh. Unfortunately for Reese, that is the rule. And, you know, you watch Match of the Day and you watch everything else. And everybody has confirmed that that is the rule. Um, the rule is an ass. I, I totally accept that. I don't think. I think once you give the penalty, that's punishment enough. Um, and I do think it was a penalty, even though it bounced off his thigh. I think the ball would have gone into the net had it not then hit his hand. And I do think there was a slight movement towards the ball from his arm after the ball hit his thigh. But the rule is an ass. Now, and I have referees that I I don't rate as high as other fans and. Chelsea fans are completely justified because Chelsea fans will have watched it far closer than I have. If, if there's a historical problem with the, the decisions Anthony Taylor is giving against Chelsea, I haven't watched that closely enough through through sort of Chelsea spectacles to know, I'll be honest with you. So I'm, I don't want to get into that debate. It's not fair for me to either because Chelsea fans would have a far better idea of what they're talking about than me. But when we're talking about that penalty and the sending off, the rule is an ass, not Anthony Taylor in that respect. And it's a harsh rule. And I don't like the, I don't like the sort of double jeopardy rule. I think the one punishment is enough. But one, under the rules, once you give that penalty, once it's stopped it going over the line, is he has to send him off. Otherwise, he hasn't refereed to the letter of the law. Um, the, the JPEG thing on the monitor, again, wasn't Anthony Taylor's fault, was it? I mean, what he's shown on the monitor isn't his fault. And... He's gone to the monitor and seen what he's seen and thought that's enough. I see it more of an issue around the rules rather than an Anthony Taylor issue in that specific context. But I, I, I look, I did think it was a penalty. And the rule is in that respect, when it's the penalty, unfortunately, has to be sent off. What I would say, small criticism of Thomas Tuchel here and potentially a small criticism of footballers and not just Chelsea players. Tuchel afterwards joked afterwards, oh, I don't know the rules anymore. Well, I'm sorry, it's these guys' job to know the rules. And I know we all joke that um, the rules change so much that there aren't rules anymore, blah, blah, blah. And 
even as press guys, it's my job to know the rules. And it's not great if I'm saying I don't know the rules. He, Thomas might just have been completely joking. Don't get me wrong. It might have just been a, a, a joke for the cameras. But if he doesn't actually know the rules, it's his job to know the rules and he needs to go away and read the rules. And the players need to know the rules because Reese's reaction, I felt very sorry for him. Reese's reaction, he had no idea why he had been sent off to start with. It was very evident. He really didn't have any idea why he had been sent off. He needs to know the rules. Whether that would have changed what happened on the line in the moment, I don't know. But the, the players need to know the rules. They have to know the rules. And that's not just Chelsea players. It frustrates me in football when managers or players come out and say we don't know the rules. It's your job to know the rules. And it, it can impact how you act on a pitch if you actually know the proper rules. So I hope Reese and I felt very sorry for him, don't get me wrong, and I'm not trying to have a go at the lad at all, but I just hope after that that maybe th there's an effort to go away and actually know exactly what the rules are because let's face it, it's worth knowing the rules of the game you're playing. And I think that is a, a fair assessment of the situation. Uh, so last thing before we get you out of here, what has been the bigger surprise? Tottenham ending the <laughs> the period before the international break at the top of the table and Harry Kane staying or Arsenal being at the bottom of the table and not having scored a single goal at the start of <laughs> the first three matches? I'm not surprised at all that Arsenal have had a bad start to the season. I think a lot of people would have predicted that. Tottenham's start has surprised me. You know, they, they started at home to Man City. I would have expected them to lose that match. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they'd have lost away at Wolves, quite frankly, either. So their start has surprised me. Although what I would say is I was at Tottenham on, on Sunday reporting on that match. They've scored one goal from open play. They've scored three goals in total. They... They they deserved to beat Watford, but they weren't brilliant. They were lucky against Wolves and they had a back-to-the-wall sort of win against Man City. Certainly think that the start could be a little bit misleading over where, where Tottenham's sort of ambitions lie because I don't think they're sort of as good as the results suggest. But yeah, Tottenham's start would, would surprise me more than Arsenal's. All right. Well, we know, again, it is a busy time of the year for you, Matt. We hope that you have uh, wonderful plans uh, for the 1st of September here once everything is done and dusted and maybe you can get a little extra sleep as it stands there. But uh, we want to thank you for jumping back on and joining us and continuing to uh, give the people all the great news as it relates to this. And uh, again, don't forget to uh, sign up for Matt's newsletter as well. Great stuff. Cheers, Dan. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, again, Chelsea fans, we appreciate doing this. We appreciate Matt being on. Uh, enjoy the rest of the transfer window as it remains. But until next time, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.